0: us open up to Romans chapter 4. Whoa, what in the world? This is Wednesday. It's the, it's the Wednesday night crowd. We're supposed to be in Genesis, that's right. Um, little, little thing happened. Some of y'all know my wife and I, we got food poisoning, so I wasn't able to preach this past Sunday evening. What I prepared from Romans 4, fun story, the sermon for this uh, upcoming Sunday morning is on Romans 5, only one verse. be a short one right so only one verse romans 5 1 and uh so we need to we need to get there by looking at this uh, section in romans 4 but it works out really well because it connects to genesis in a really cool way it's all about abraham and his faith and what we see from genesis especially places like genesis 15 genesis 17 uh, and, and continuing on so We're going to continue in Romans 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 25, a very general study. I'm not going to try to go too in-depth with anything, but you'll remember as we were starting uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, Paul was basically making two points, because you remember his audience was going to say, hey, you're saying that salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You need to prove that. And so he did, right, by pointing to two people from the Old Testament that they loved. He says, hey, look at Abraham, right? You think he was perfectly obedient, and that's why God saved him? And Paul says, that's not why God saved him. (laughs) Abraham was a sinner, and he failed, and so you cannot be good enough to earn salvation. That's what Abraham taught us. And then he points to David. And the whole reason he points to David is to show, even though David sinned greatly, God still forgave him and welcomed him into his family. And so David shows us you can't be too bad, that you can't outsend the cross of Christ. And I love seeing how people, this light bulb moment in people's minds and brains where they finally realize that the Old Testament is very consistent with the New Testament and that God has been the same from the beginning, that there's not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. There's not an Old Testament way of salvation and a New Testament way of salvation. It's been the same from the start and I love seeing that happen in people's minds and so Paul's going to continue because he's continuing with this theme of hey this is how salvation works it's by grace through faith in Christ and he's already looked at Abraham and David you would think his audience would be satisfied with that but they're going to say well hold on how do we obtain righteousness you're saying it's by grace through faith in Christ but well, what if it's something else Paul what if it's circumcision And so look at me at verses 9 through 12, Romans 4, 9 through 12. This is what the Bible says. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? Good question, right? Because the Jews and Gentiles in that church have been saying, okay, we like hearing about this blessing. Sounds good. Who gets it? Who's going to receive it? Paul says, verse 9, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised? What's the main word? Keyword in that passage. Anybody want to take a guess? Circumcised, right? It occurs a lot. In fact, fun story. I told this to Mazan. I had an entirely different whiteboard. Uh, filled out tonight. I had an entirely different message until about an hour before service started. I was going to show you from Genesis 17 and Romans 4 the relationship between the circumcision and potentially baptism or the sign of the new covenant and it was going to be this deep theological thing and I said you know what let's just scrap it we'll do that another time and it'll be fun so we will do it another time but we're just going to go light tonight and I want you to see here what Paul is saying To his audience, okay? So so he's saying it's salvation and righteousness through faith. That's what it is. And, And his audience is saying, well, what if it was circumcision? And Paul goes, no, no. You've misread Genesis again. Not only did Abraham not receive righteousness through his obedience and his perfection, it did not come through circumcision. Because Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight before. He was ever circumcised, right? It happened long before. See, circumcision, it served two purposes. Number one, as Paul's telling us here, it was a sign of God's covenant with him, right? It was a sign of the covenant. It was a sign that he belonged to God's covenant people, and it served as a symbol of something that had already taken place in his heart, right? I mean, that's what Moses is gonna say later on in Deuteronomy, that circumcision is actually meant to represent something that's taken place in your heart, that your heart has been circumcised. Well, that was true of Abraham. His heart had been circumcised. He had been convicted of his sins. He had trusted in God. He believed, and God counted it to him as righteousness. It's the same thing Paul said in Romans chapter 2, if you'll remember. He said, listen, circumcision is not a matter of the flesh. It's a matter of the heart, and it's conducted by or wrought by who? The Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one. He circumcises our hearts. So this was the first part of circumcision. It was a sign. But notice this. This is interesting. It was also a what? There's another S word there. A seal. A seal. And what was it a seal of? Righteousness. righteousness. Now that is interesting, is it not? It was a sign that he belonged to the covenant people of God. And it was a seal of the righteousness that he had. Keyword there, church. What's the word? Before he was circumcised. Abraham received the sign of the covenant, and it was, he was sealed with circumcision later, but it was sealing the righteousness that he had beforehand. Now, the reason I say we need to think carefully about this verse is because it has a lot to contribute to the baptism discussion. And I know what you're thinking. Pastor, I don't see the word baptism in there at all. You're right very astute for noticing that. The word baptism is not there, but many people bring it into the discussion. Why do they bring it into the discussion? Why would, why would baptism find its way? I baptism, I know being raised Catholic, it brings you into the church. Okay, yeah. So, so, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit. We might not get that far. Enough. So Catholics believe that, that baptism would bring you into the church. There are many people who would believe, and I mean entire groups, denominations, would believe that baptism is the what? The sign of the new covenant. If you ask them, hey, what's the sign of the new covenant? They'll say baptism. Just as circumcision was the sign of the old covenant, that's how you indicated who belonged to the people of God and the family of God and the covenant people, they would say that is now baptism. Those who are baptized belong to the covenant people of God. It is the sign of the covenant. In fact, as I was doing uh, research on this, I was reading a commentary, and this was by a Presbyterian commentator, and he said this about this passage. He said, in the new covenant, baptism replaces circumcision as the sign and seal of one's place in the covenant family. And then he just moved on, okay? And you all know how I feel about that, because do you recognize what that is? It's a claim with no backing. What would Alex say to that? What do you mean by that? (laughs) Prove it. (laughs) You can't just say something like that and then move on. You can't just say it replaces it and then offer no proof. You got to back that kind of thing up. That's a huge theological statement, right? So we need to ask the question, is that the case? Is baptism the sign of the new covenant and does it matter? I would say yes, right? It does matter, obviously. Here's what's interesting. Did you know there is not a single instance in the entire New Testament where baptism is ever referred to as either a sign or a seal? We just we hear that language all the time, right? Baptism is the sign of the New Covenant. There's not a single instance in the entire New Testament where baptism is ever referred to as a sign or a seal of anything. In fact, there's only one thing in the entire New Testament that's ever referred to as a sign and a seal. Anybody know what that is? What specifically? Let's go deeper. Indwelling. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's our esteemed pastor or intern, Joseph. Bro- <laughs> <Overpay>. Overpaid. Overpaid. <laughs> That joke's never going to die. So yeah, it's interesting. Baptism's never referred to as a sign or a seal of anything, but the Holy Spirit, and specifically the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is actually referred to as a seal. So it's interesting. 2 Corinthians one twenty-two, and it says, And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, the seal is the giving of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Uh, Another one, Ephesians 1 13 through 14. In Him, being Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I mean, don't miss what that's saying there, okay? A person has heard the gospel, they have believed the gospel, and then they were sealed with the promised holy spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire it acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory now that is almost the exact same language paul's using here in romans 4 is it not i mean compare them again uh, paul says here uh, that that receiving he uses the described receiving circumcision he says abraham heard this message from god he received a word from god he believed that message He was declared righteous in God's sight, and then that is when later he received the sign and the seal of the covenant, right? Paul says there in Ephesians, when we hear the gospel, when we believe the gospel, God declares us to be righteous in his sight, and then we are sealed with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so the sign of the New Covenant is not baptism. I'm a Baptist, I love baptism, okay? But the sign of the New Covenant is not baptism. The sign that you belong to the people of God is not baptism. If that were the case, you could just baptize anyone and say they belong now to the people of God, but that is not supported in the New Testament. The sign that a person belongs to the New Covenant The sign that a person is a part of God's family and belongs to the covenant family is that they have the Holy Spirit in their hearts. They have been convicted of their sin. They've repented of their sin. They've trusted in Jesus. God has declared them to be righteous in his sight. And then God has given them his own Holy Spirit as the sign, you are mine, and the seal of his promise and his covenant and our inheritance, which he is keeping for us in glory. It's the Holy Spirit. And so this is really important. This is why we don't baptize babies. And this is why we only baptize professing believers. It's because a baby can't repent. A baby can't trust in Jesus. A baby it cannot receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit unless you're accounting for one possible instance in Scripture where John the Baptist may or may not have had the indwelling Holy Spirit while he was still in the womb. But apart from that, it doesn't line up and and, see this we're going to get back in the chart if I stay on this too long okay but but there are a lot of reasons but the point you need to understand is that you have to have faith to receive the sign of the covenant and be sealed Uh, I thought about using a comparison where you know I, I don't know that it necessarily works this way I'm not saying it does but if you were to seal a person in their unrighteousness and in their sin right It's almost like when God barred Adam and Eve from the garden. You remember this? He he puts the flaming swords there and the cherubim there because they were now in a fallen state, right? They were in a sinful state. They had sin. He did not want them to eat of the tree of life. Why? they They would live in their sin forever. Almost feels like we should retain baptism if that is the seal. I'm not saying it is. But if a baptism is a seal, you shouldn't want to seal someone in their original sin and in their fallen state. You should want to withhold that. And if baptism is a sign and a seal, it should only be given to those who were in a state that God wanted Adam and Eve in, a non-sinful state. But anyways, we go on. The whole point, though, is this. Baptism is serving as an outward sign that God has done something in your heart. That you have been united with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection and you've been made new by Jesus. And Paul's point is actually very simple here. He's saying salvation does not come through circumcision or baptism. It doesn't come through either one. He's saying righteousness comes through faith not okay? Not circumcision. I just ran out of room. <laughs> Righteousness comes through faith, not circumcision, or put it in our terms today, or baptism. And this is incredibly important because as Michael said before, there are many people, and you might think it sounds strange, but there are many people who trust entirely in their baptism for their salvation. That's what the Catholic Church teaches, that the Catholic Church, if you look up their official doctrine, it says that baptism makes you part of the family of God. It confers grace to you. It gives you salvation, and you become part of God's family through baptism. And so you end up trusting in your baptism rather than in Jesus. Now, I'm not saying no Catholics trust in Jesus. That's not the point I'm making because I know that many of them do. But I'm saying that the official teaching of the Catholic Church is that baptism is what does it for you. In fact, this is a very real situation. I was talking with a church member Monday of this week. He had been talking with a woman who was in a terrible state. I mean, her whole life has fallen apart. And and she can't figure it out. She knows she's not right with God. And she said, but I think I'm okay because I was raised in the Catholic Church and I was baptized when I was a baby. And so even though she had not trusted in Christ, even though she had not walked with Christ at any point in her life, even though her whole life was in shambles and everything was going wrong and she didn't know what to do, she said, I think at the end of the day I'm okay because I've been baptized. That's the point Paul is trying to get his audience to understand here, that righteousness, it doesn't come through circumcision. It comes through faith. Salvation doesn't come through your religious activities. It comes through faith. And so a really important question for you to ask this evening is, just you need to ask yourself, what are you trusting in? I'm sure it's not your circumcision, but it might be some other religious act, right? There could be all sorts of religious things that you participate in that you think or your assurance of salvation? What are you trusting in? What is the assurance of your salvation? What do you look to when you want to assure yourself you're saved, you're part of the people of God, you're going to be with Him forever in glory? Are you looking back on some time when you were baptized? Are you looking back at the front of your Bible to a date that you wrote and you said, because I made a decision on this day, and even though I've lived like the devil ever since then, but because I made a a spur-of-the-moment decision on this day, because I was guilted into something, I'm trusting that I am a Christian. What are you trusting? If it's anything other than Christ alone, you've misplaced it. You've misplaced it. The reason that I know I'm saved is because of Jesus. I don't have a date written in my Bible. I don't know the date of my baptism. I don't look to those things. I look to what I'm trusting in right now. I'm trusting in Jesus. He is sufficient. I have faith in Him, and God says, that's what I require. Faith in Jesus. It's not your religious activities. It could be your confirmation, your mass, confession, church membership, Lord's Supper. If it's any of those things that you're looking to for your assurance, it's entirely misplaced. He says salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, and Christ alone. And they say, well, hey, listen, Paul, Because not a circumcision, it must be the law. Because if there's two things the Jewish people loved, it was circumcision and the law. So this is what he says in verses 13 through 17. He said, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written... I've made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that, are, that do not exist. You see, the problem with thinking that righteousness and salvation can be obtained by the law is twofold. right? So first and foremost, righteousness and salvation, if they come through adherence to the law, it means faith is null and the promise is void. In other words, all people are Doomed because the law brings wrath. Second, if righteousness and salvation come through adherence to the law, it means the blessing rests on works rather than on grace. That's what Paul's saying here. You see, the the problem is when God made his promise to Abraham that he would bless Abraham and that in Abraham and his offspring all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God didn't require anything of Abraham except faith, right? God didn't come to Abraham and say, okay, listen, I've got a blessing for you. I've got it right here, and if you want it, here's what you must do. That's not at all what God said, is it? I mean, we've been studying Genesis for two years now. God said to Abram in Genesis 12, go, and I will bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. In you and in your offspring, all the nations will be blessed. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. What did he require of him? What did he say if you do this? He didn't. It's not there at all. It's because God's promise did not depend on works or on law. It depended on grace. It rested on grace. This is exactly why the promise was not nullified and taken away when Abraham messed up. And he messed up quite a bit, didn't he? But God didn't say, hey, listen, you sinned, you messed up, you fell short again, therefore, the promise is gone. I'm removing it from you. The blessing is gone, I'm removing it from you. No, he didn't take it away. Because it didn't depend on Abraham's adherence to a law or some requirement. It rested on grace. And that's why he says the law brings only wrath. Why is that? Why does the law only bring wrath? convicts us of sin? Why else? Why else would the law only bring wrath? Exactly. Because we cannot perfectly follow it. The law says do this, do this, do this, and if you don't do this, you get wrath and condemnation. And here's our problem. We can't do it. (laughs) We can't do it. We are fallen, sinful creatures. The Bible says we all fall short of the glory of God. We sin, we fall short of the glory. We cannot keep the law perfectly as God requires. And so the law brings only wrath and condemnation. And so Paul's saying here, listen, to to the people he's writing to in Rome, the church in Rome, he says, listen, if you want to try to earn righteousness and salvation through your works and through your obedience to the law, go ahead and try But understand this, you're going to fall short, and it's going to end with wrath and condemnation. And so this promise of God, the promise to bless, the promise of salvation, the promise of righteousness, it depends on faith and grace, not works and law. It was made to Abraham and his offspring, which is Jesus, which is why the Bible says in Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. That's good news for everybody in this room. Because as far as I know, no one in here is Jewish by ethnicity, right? And yet, he says, God made the promise to Abraham, and to Abraham's offspring, singular, by the way, Paul makes that point in Galatians 3, which is Jesus. And so if you have faith in Christ, you are a child of Abraham's through faith. And if you're a child of Abraham's through faith, you are an heir of the promise. So, all the promises that God made to Abraham, all the promises that God has fulfilled and brought to fruition in Christ, they are yours because you are God's. You are in Christ through faith, and so you have the promise of God. And so the promise rests on grace, not works. The promise rests on grace not works. And this is important because just like how we have Catholics saying that baptism makes you part of the family of God, we also have people today who believe that you have to do something in order to truly obtain the promise, right? I love witnessing to the witnesses. They are my favorite people to witness to, the Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? Uh, I have to stumble upon them now (laughs) at houses, but because they don't come to my house anymore, and uh, the ones that I made contact with the other week, they actually texted me, and they were quite rude and said, we're not talking to you anymore. Uh, you're unbiblical with this teaching of the Trinity and stuff, and we really, you're, you're just closed-minded and all this kind of stuff, and so we don't want to talk to you. So I don't get a chance to witness to them anymore. But what they will tell you when you're witnessing to them and talking with them is they believe Jesus paid the ransom for our sin. Now, as Christians, we go, amen, that sounds good. This is why they deceive so many people. But then they say... If you really want to make sure, though, that you're going to obtain the fullness of salvation, that you're going to obtain all the promises of God and all that God has to offer His people, you do that through works. Jesus pays the ransom for our sin. He starts the process, but it's up to you to finish it. He did your part. He died on the cross for your sins, but then you have to go and do all these other things to make sure that you obtain it, that you secure it, that it is yours, when you do that through works and obedience to the commands of god and, and so something you need to ask because you're like well i don't i don't do that that's not me but, but ask yourself this question when you're examining your life why are you obedient to god have you ever thought about that why are you actually doing the things that god says he wants people to do is it because well, God told me to do it, so I need to do it. <laughs> Is it because you're trying to earn something? Now, you wouldn't admit it. Maybe you would admit it to yourself in private. But you think, if I go and do all these things, then God will be pleased with me. Then He'll really love me. Then I'll really be. It. The reason I'm going to read my Bible the reason I'm going to pray, the reason I'm going to attend church, the reason I'm going to participate in religious activities, the reason I'm going to go and do all these works and try to keep as many laws and be as obedient as I can is because I want to make sure I'm super safe, that I've, I've just secured it, that there's no doubt left, and it's because I've done all these things, and that is how I know that I have the promise of God. Is that why you're obedient? Or when you truly examine your own motives, and you can be honest with yourself enough, is because you realize that you were a sinner who deserved nothing but the wrath and condemnation of God. You didn't even deserve to be in His presence. And yet, not only did you not deserve that, and yet, not only did He not condemn you and send you to hell immediately as we all deserved, He sent His Son to die in your place so that He could redeem you and reconcile you. And you did nothing to earn that. You did nothing to deserve that. And yet he did it. And so it is the overwhelming desire of your heart to glorify him in everything you do, to honor him in everything you do, to do what he says to do because you want to do it. As First John says, 1 John in chapter 5 verse 3 says that we know that the love of God is in our hearts because we, we do His commandments and they're not burdensome to us. We actually want to do what God says to do because it's the desire of our heart. Because God's changed our heart. Abraham's trying to get the audience here in Rome to understand that you're not going to receive salvation or righteousness through your works. It depends on grace. Not your work. All right, and very quickly, we'll go through this last section. He says, it's not dependent, praise God, on our perfection. So this is what he says in verses 18 to 25. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As uh, he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's, of Sarah's womb who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord and was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, these verses give us some insight into what Abraham's faith looks like and to what true saving faith looks like. Because, listen, we could be tempted to read these verses and go, well, hey, look at Abraham. Good for him. He didn't waver. He didn't doubt. This was a man after God declared him to be righteous. Good on Abraham. He was perfect the rest of his days. He had the perfect faith. He was perfectly obedient. Yes, God called him righteous, and then he proved it. He had this awesome life. But is that actually what it's saying here? Is that what it's saying? Because we know the Genesis story pretty well at this point, right? Was Abraham perfect after God declared him to be righteous? No. The very next chapter, Genesis 16, what does he do? Sleeps with Hagar. (laughs) The very next chapter, God declares him righteous in his sight, and he says, okay, I'm going to sleep with her. He wasn't perfect. Keep in mind, just a couple chapters after that, he does the whole she's my sister bit again, okay? You'd think he'd learn his lesson the first time, but no, he did it twice, this guy. Taught it to his son Isaac, too. He pulled that trick. Abraham did not live a perfect life even after being declared righteous. Righteous. And his faith wasn't exactly what we might think of when we think of perfect faith. Because it's tempting to think that, right? I mean, look at these words again. It says, he did not weaken in faith. No unbelief made him waver. It gives the impression that Abraham never had any doubts about anything. Abraham never had any moments of, of weakness. He was just perfect. But here's my question, church. Is that the case? Is that the case? No, it's not. I don't think these words, that, what Paul's saying here, I don't think it's meant to convey the idea that Abraham always had perfect faith, that Abraham never had any doubts, that he never wavered in anything. It, it causes us to think carefully about what it really means to have saving faith and what that looks like. Because he it's going to say that, that, that Abraham always had this, this faith What he's saying is that that Abraham trusted that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. That's what Abraham's faith was. It was trust in what God said. That God was going to fulfill his promise. That God was going to make him the father of many nations. That God was going to bless the nations through Abraham and his offspring. You see, Abraham didn't struggle to believe that it would happen. That's how his faith never wavered. He never believed that he never stopped believing that God was going to do what God said he was going to do. He struggled with understanding how it would happen. So that, that that was his faith. He never doubted that it would happen. He just struggled with how it was going to happen, right? So, so, God said to him, He's going to make him the father of many nations. Abraham says, I know you will because you provided me with this slave woman and she can bear children. So, here's what I'm going to do I'm going to bring it into fruition myself. I'm going to go and sleep with her. That was not him doubting that God was going to make him the father of nations. He just didn't know how it was going to happen. He's like, Look, I'm old. Sarah's old. It's not going to happen through this. It must be Hagar. He, he believed it would happen. He didn't know how. Same thing when he said, God said to him, Your own son is going to be your heir. He goes, I know it will. Because Ishmael is about 13 years old now. He's looking real good. God, would you make Ishmael my heir? And God says, no. Abraham's fight was constantly trying to take matters into his own hands to bring about God's promises in Abraham's timing, not God's timing. He never doubted that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. He just struggled with, how is God actually going to bring that to pass? Same thing we struggle with today, by the way. But that's the nature of what true, saving faith looks like. See, true true faith is not complete understanding. It's complete trust, even in the midst of not fully understanding because we ran out of room again. That's what true faith is. True faith is not complete understanding. God doesn't say, you have to know it all. You have to understand it all. You have to have perfect knowledge and understanding. That's not what true faith is. True faith is trusting God, believing God, trusting that God is going to do what he said he was going to do, even when you don't fully understand. Even when you can't fully comprehend what God's doing. And this is exactly what happened when God told Samuel, hey, go anoint me a new king. Go to this house. It's got lots of sons, right? And Samuel looks at these guys and he's like, this is the dude right here. I mean, he's tall, he's big, he's the firstborn, this has got to be the guy. God's like, I don't look at the appearance. I look at the heart. Samuel knew God's gonna anoint a new king. He sent me here to do it. But I don't know how if it's not this guy and it's not the next guy, and it's not the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy. And then eventually he gets to David. He's like, the shepherd boy? The one who's out in the field? This little guy? They described him as pretty. He was a pretty boy you was handsome. Samuel says, this is your God? Right. I don't know how it's going to work, but I trust you. That's what faith looks like. God doesn't require us to understand and know everything perfectly. Aren't you thankful for that? Because I don't. <laughs> I may be a pastor of a church, but I don't understand everything. There are some mysteries that God says, hey, you're just going to have to wait till glory, and I'll, I'll let you know then. We don't get to know everything. We look at our lives and we can see some things crumbling and falling apart. God, why is this happening? I'm faithful. I'm doing what you've called me to do. I'm trying my best here. Why is all this other stuff happening? God says, you don't have to know. I just need you to trust me. I think it was Spurgeon who said, when you can't trace his hand, you trust his heart. You don't know what he's up to. You can't figure it out. And you're like, God, I don't know what you're doing here. He says, you don't have to. I just need you to trust me. I just need you to follow. And so this is what salvation, what saving faith actually looks like. You can have your doubts, you can have your moments of weakness. You can waver in some things, but you need to understand that none of those doubts or weaknesses or waverings means that you don't have true faith. God says it doesn't have to be perfect. I just need you to trust me and follow me. Have faith. And that's what Paul wants the church in Rome to know. You want salvation? You want righteousness, it's not going to come through circumcision or any sort of religious activity. You want righteousness, you want salvation, it does not depend on your ability to obey or uphold the law. It rests on grace. And it comes through faith in Jesus. That doesn't require perfect knowledge, it just requires trust. And so I'm very thankful that that's where the bar is at for us. (laughs) That God says, all you have to do, trust in Jesus, because salvation is Grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Always has been. All right, Michael Stevenson. How about a word of wisdom? Religion leads us astray. Yes, it does. Religion leads us astray. That's for the podcasters. word and trust, it's almost too simple We try to make it harder all the time. All the time. That's what religion is. That's what religion is. It's just trying to make hard the things that God makes simple. All right, Lowell Caldwell, how about leading us in a closing word of prayer?